You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who've been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. We're really looking forward to our second Wider Lands Renewal Retreat at the very end of October. Yes, it's going to be right here in my backyard in beautiful Scottsdale, Arizona. It was a really special occasion and it really did seem to be truly transformative. And parents who attended last time were very keen to come together for another retreat. Yeah, and for those of you who didn't attend last time, this is a retreat for parents who are seeking a deeper understanding of themselves and of their gender-questioning child. And it's also for parents who need some time out for some self-reflection and who want to parent with more confidence. Yeah, so please join me, Stella, and our dear friend and colleague, Lisa Marciano, in Scottsdale, Arizona this fall. The Eventbrite link will be in the show notes, and you can also Google Wider Lens Renewal Retreat Arizona. We hope to see you there. Maya Forstadter is a researcher, writer, and advisor working on business and sustainable development. She's one of the founders of Sex Matters, a UK-based not-for-profit organization that seeks to reestablish that sex indeed does matter in rules, laws, policies, language, and culture. In 2019, Maya lost her job after tweeting and writing about sex and gender. She had begun talking about news articles, which she felt espoused some bizarre new beliefs about gender and what the implications could be. For example, she was building a campaign to combat overly sex-segregated toys for kids called Let Toys Be Toys, and at the time, she observed that society had shifted from fighting sex stereotypes to claiming that some children were neither girls nor boys. It was also fascinating to learn that even while she was researching tax policy, Maya found herself calling out unrealistic or utopian ideas and ruffling some feathers among her liberal peers. In this conversation, Maya reflects on her unlikely position in the landmark court case which established that gender-critical views are protected as a belief under the Equality Act. Despite her reluctance to jump into a complicated and messy legal process, she felt a strong conviction to take this on. Before we jump in, we also just wanted to be transparent about some of the tech difficulties we've been having lately. We've actually had a hard time with some of the recording software. And so as you'll hear, there are some typing noises that you can hear a little bit in the background. Um, Unfortunately, that was me taking notes. uh, And typically, we're able to edit those out. But due to some of the glitches in the software, we had a decision to make. Either we publish the interview as is, Or we find a time in our schedules where all three of us can come together again and try to recreate the discussion. And we really just didn't think that was feasible. So we ask our listeners for a little bit of grace and patience because it's not that bad. And also, Maya really shows a different side of herself in this conversation. Of course, we talk about the court case and all the things you probably expect. But it was really nice to get to know Maya as a person and learn a little bit more about her background. So with that being said, we hope you really enjoy it. We hope it's not too distracting. And here's our discussion with Maya Forstatter. Hi, Sasha. How's it going? Um, Going well. 
I'm really excited to have this uh, session today. Uh, last night, funnily enough, I was out with my first dater, but we had this planned a good while ago. And um, so you're very welcome, Maya. Um, I, I think what was most ex what you're most known for in the world of gender is the, the court case you took. And I remember the day reading about it on, on Facebook. You said, I can't believe I'm doing this. I'm going to take this court case. And I was reading it going, wow, what, what's all this about? And obviously we've, we've all followed it ever since. And there's been huge peaks and troughs in this case, <laughs> huge. So I'd like to get to know you, you the woman, Maya, the whole way from like how you first discovered what was going on in the world of gender, how it all evolved, what made you take this court case and how it's all worked out. So you're very welcome. My lovely Maya. Hello. Uh, I hope I don't sound too croaky. I've got a touch of COVID. <laughs> That's okay. You sound great. Yeah. You're really in the trenches as you seem to find yourself often, even with an illness. <laughs> so It's such an exciting time to meet you because it's exactly, what is it, how long is it since you won your case? It's about two weeks. Two weeks post yeah. four statter, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> And we're recording this July 15th, just for anybody listening, because this will air in a couple of weeks. So you're two weeks past. Yeah, well, not, not even two weeks. And could you tell us, when did you first kind of notice anything to do with gender? Or when did you first get interested in this subject? Um, well, it was 2017 when I first kind of noticed the gender wars. And I had been a mum and I'd been on mum's net previously when my kids were little um, or littler. And actually I started a mum's net campaign before the gender wars um, called Let's to Let Toys Be Toys, which was about gender stereotypes. So I was, you know, um, going into toy shops with my kids and getting mad at all the girls being sold, you know, pink um, dishwashers and the boys being oh. sold um, construction toys. And there was a small group of us on Mumsnet who got mad about that. And we started a campaign. It was like a, an instant campaign. And um, within 24 hours of launching it, the BBC called and said, will someone come on the breakfast show? And of the six of us, we went, and I said, well, I'll do it. I, I was the brave one. And so I went on BBC Breakfast and, and launched this campaign. So that was my first sort of experience about sex and gender. And it was it was about gender in the old school. And I remember when we were launching that campaign, we were deciding what to call it. And the original name was Let Toys Be Toys for Girls and Boys. And somebody emailed us and said, girls and boys, that's a bit exclusionary you know some children are not girls or boys and and we like we had no what, idea what year is this this was like i think maybe 2009 uh, or 2012 something like that it i was, think i read somewhere yeah. it was 2012 yeah yeah i think wow. 2012. and so you know somebody emailed us and said that and we were like what what and in the end we did we took that out of the strap line um so that was kind of that's the like prehistory um and but we had no idea of you know all of the gender madness. We were really just trying to say girls should be able to play with construction toys and boys should be able oh, to wear dresses. 
Could I just come in though? It kind of does though, because I well, I think that and I um I'm interested in what you all think. I think that the the heavy emphasis on blue and, and pink has not gone well for a small group of, of children. Some some children don't care, but there's a group that it sits very badly with. So it was a very relevant Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But we weren't thinking about, you know, children not no. being girls or boys. We were just thinking that all children should be able to play with whatever they want and not be put in boxes. Um, and so and that- I'm curious about something just, and we'll come back to the chronological part of the story, but you said, oh, you know, we took girls and boys out of the headline just because we were like, oh, well, let's just, you know, move on and get how, figure out how to make this work. If you knew what you knew now, then would you have taken out girls and boys? Um, I think it made it a better title. I mean, okay. I, you know, I think copywriting, it made it a better title, but um no, and it's in, and and I've I stepped back from that campaign. My kids got older, and you know I wasn't spending so much time being angry in toy shops. But it's still, <laughs> and um, and I know there are splits. You became with, angry uh, elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, exactly. in college campuses. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a pattern here, right? Um, but but that campaign has carried on, and like all like bigger voluntary organisations, there's a split within it between the people who are saying, you know, this is about fighting sex stereotypes and then between the people who are now promoting gender so it's okay okay but but at the time we had no idea about that so so that's prehistory and then was was Posey Parker I know she was on Mum's Net was she part of all that no well I don't know I I don't remember her being on in those at the time and so then I I sort of left Mum's Net I was doing other stuff at work I was you know um, not part of that and I was on Twitter and I started seeing the sex and gender discussions and I also saw the thing with Jenny Murray um, you know the Radio 4 Women's Hour presenter who wrote this article I think in 2017 in um, the Times I think um, anyway in the newspaper um, say, where she said Trans women are trans women. They should be celebrated as that. And I, I didn't know really know anything about this, but that seemed like a compassionate, rational thing to say. And then she got piled on and she was a terrible person and she got cancelled. So that was one of the first things I noticed. And so in 2017, I started kind of following a bit more of this stuff on Twitter. And I went back to Mum's Net because Mum's Net is the source of all wisdom. And, <laughs> and lo and behold... <laughs> yeah, radicalized on Mum's Net. Um, so during um, sort of 2017, the beginning of 2018, I was just following this stuff on Twitter and on Mum's Net, um, and trying to work out: Am I a bigot? You know, what, what, like, why am I on the wrong side of history on this? Why am I on the other side from all of the progressive people? And that took me a while, and I had like a, you know, on Twitter you can have um, lists, like you can have private lists oh, yeah. that I can't see. So I had a list called Peak Trans. So I just added, you know, oh, people... you quietly peak transing, where you're not commenting. No, 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 I was just no, exactly. I didn't want people. I didn't want to follow the, you know, I didn't want it to show that I was following all these people, but I wanted to see what they were saying. So I just started a list called Peak Trans, and it, and I sort of added the interesting people to it. And I mean, now that list is is public. It's now called gender critical. But um, so I read like, um, you know, Lily Maynard, uh, whose daughter um, transitioned or, or 
and then mm-hmm. desisted. Um, and she wrote this long piece about her daughter and about other children. Um, and I remember sort of reading that and kind of staying up all night one night reading her blog um, and just thinking this this is madness, what, what they're doing to children. Um, so I'd got to a point in 2018 sort of August, September 2018, when I decided, okay, I, I understand enough about this topic. I want to say something about it. And and I didn't understand, I, I sort of didn't look at the question about minds and transgender people and, you know, all of the stuff that you're looking at. I kind of put all of that in a box. I, I said, well, you know, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't need to know that stuff. But what I know is, women are women and women have rights and we need to have words to be able to talk about that. That was, that was the thing that I was concerned with. Um, and I still, you know, there, there are different reasons why people transition and that, you know, there's a, there, it's good that people are understanding that and, and you need to understand it more, but none of that changes the fact that no men are women and, that if we undermine that definition and those laws, then that affects women in a in a harmful way. And in 2018, it was quite difficult even to say that because anytime you talked about this, it was all about trans people. And I wanted to say, well, this is this is also about women. And, and could I ask, because it occurs to me, let's say with your with your campaign, Let Toys Be Toys, which I by the way think is an amazing campaign. Um, and I presume is that connected with let clothes be clothes because I know there's another that started afterwards. So so we started let toys be toys and then um, let clothes be clothes started started afterwards. Um, and that's a bit different because you know clothes are different because bodies are different. Um, but then you know little girls' clothes are heavily sexualized, and you know little children's bodies are not that different. But um, anyway, yeah, so that started afterwards. Yeah, um, and then you you noticed this women thing, and you were in Twitter, and and I, I, as far as I know, you're a tax consultant. Were you raised to be a feminist, or were you raised to be? You know, there does seem a strong theme there. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm not really I'm not a tax consultant. That it's one of the myths about me. You won't get that wrong. <laughs> no, no, they always it always says in the paper she's a tax expert. Um, like I'm not an accountant. I was. I'm a researcher and I was working on international tax policy and I got into that. I, you know, I've not done that all my career. My, my degree is in agriculture and then I'm from London. Um, And then I'd worked on um, supply chain labor standards and sweatshop labor, um, uh, business and human rights. And I got interested in tax because there were these weird, um, debates about international tax the idea that um if amazon paid more tax you could pay for all of the schools and hospitals in the poorest countries in the world and amazon you know there are issues about how you tax multinational corporations it's difficult and they are that you know they're not paying enough tax but it doesn't solve the problems of the poorest countries in the world and you get these kind of crazy big numbers attached to, you know, Amazon and, uh, you know, Facebook and so on. And they were being promoted by organisations like Oxfam, who, you know, ought to do good research. And so I'd written some blog posts about that. And I had 
um, annoyed some people in the progressive campaigning world <laughs> around the tax debates. And that's actually how I got my job at CGD was they had written a paper about um, tax claiming that these big corporations were the source and the answer to um, solving the financing problems of developing countries. And I took the paper apart and showed why it was wrong. Um, and they withdrew the paper. It was the first and only time they'd ever done that. And then they didn't offer me a job, but they are, you know, they asked me to do a piece of work for them. And then I ended up doing some more work for them. And we raised some money together to start a program of work. So, you know, so okay, I don't so, cause trouble on tax rather than being a, you know, sort of um, well, a tax account. It's interesting because you, you kind of now have established yourself in two totally unrelated realms as somebody who uses research and analysis and statistics to poke holes in a utopian vision right. that seems progressive and social justice-like, but actually isn't accurate or right. helpful. Exactly, exactly. And the, the dynamics in the tax debate would sort of just like the trans debate, but, you know, much smaller, equally vicious, but on a much smaller scale. Um, wow. I yeah. had no idea. <laughs> because people mention your background in tax research as a very just quick, quick, over, yeah. like an, a quickly overviewed thing. But that's fascinating because you you had this critical eye. You had this analytic perspective of, around a lot of other things. It's not like you're just obsessed with trans. Uh, you no, just I, don't like when I, BS yeah, is spouted as fact. Right. I, I don't like bullshit and I don't like bullshit capturing progressive organizations I guess and I like running into fires I don't know why <laughs> well it's not even running into fires when you when you see something you're willing to actually not only stand up and be counted but actually do something about it like the let toys be toys thing is a big deal I I bring it up so often in talks I give you know I do little clips from let toys be toys pointing out the issues of it's huge so, so I always knew you were connected with that, but I didn't realize, like, you know, you're clearly somebody who, who, you know, cuts, cuts through the crap and actually does things like I, I'm doubly, triply impressed with you. And we haven't even got to gender. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a um, serial troublemaker. <laughs> <laughs> And then uh, you were in your organization. They had, from what I could gather, the, the, this tax crowd, they had spotted you as a clever person because you cut through their article and you said, there's holes in this, and they were impressed. Yeah, and also I liked the organization because it was an organization. I mean, the reason why I was so disappointed that they'd written this bad paper was because they were an organization with a reputation for rigor and seriousness and um you know they have an organizational policy we don't take positions so people within the organization can disagree they you know they did a lot of social media and blogging where they would disagree with each other and i thought that was that was good um so you know so i i wanted to work there partly for that reason um and yeah, I guess that's why they liked me, because I wasn't just towing the party line, but I was looking at whether there was evidence for it. And you had started to tweet. You'd had your, your private 
peak trans file. And then it started to come out saying, I, I'm seeing issues with the gender debate. Right. So I had about 2,000 followers at the time, and they were policy wonks. So, you know, they mm. like to argue. And this was a policy issue in the UK. The government was doing this consultation, so they were asking us to contribute to it. And I could see things like, you know, Kathleen Stock already getting um, attacked in public, you know, the, just all of all of the no debate stuff. And I thought, well, I work in this organisation that's open to debate. I've got 2,000 followers. I'm not that important, but I'm in a position where I ought to be able to say something. And so first off, I tweeted, um, you know, there is a government consultation, read the Fair Play for Women um, brochure or leaflet. Um, other opinions are available you know, take part. It was like a very bland um, invitation for people. This, this was about the Gender Recognition Act. That was yes, about the about the consultation, about the government consultation. And you know, it took me hours to kind of write. It was like four tweets, and it took me hours to 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 write that because I was quite nervous. And nobody commented, nobody retweeted, nobody liked, <laughs> nobody said anything. You know, and nothing happened and so then over the following few weeks I tweeted a bit more I remember tweeting about Karen White you know just things that were in the news I was like if if something's being reported in the newspaper you ought to be able to tweet about it and for people who don't know Karen White was the prisoner and uh trans woman and sexually assaulted other women while in in prison in the female prison although she was biologically born male right right so so I tweeted about that and you know a few other things that were going on in the news that were sort of illustrating the problems with self-id and wasn't getting any any response either people saying you're a bigot or you're right or this is interesting (laughs) or you know nothing which was unusual because you know I, I had a twitter community of people who argued about things um and so I wanted them I wanted to see if I could ask a question that would get them to talk. And then there was this story about Phipps Bunce, who uh, is a guy called Philip Bunce, who works for Credit Suisse, the bank, um, who goes to work part-time in a dress and a wig. And Phipps Bunce had been awarded um, or put on a list of leading women in business uh, by the FT, and that had caused anger and you know there was a whole kind of twitter storm about that which you know i i sort of agreed with the anger but i also thought well this is a way to ask a question so i asked a question of my followers um lots of guys who work in international development have taken this pledge not to be on a manal so if they're invited to speak at a conference and it's going to be an all-male panel they say to the organizer um there must be women who know about this subject. Could you find a woman? And either, you know, they can make the panel bigger or the guy will step down and a woman takes their place. And it's, so it's something that people have done as individuals to say, you know, this is something I'm doing to promote women in my sector in public life. And so I said, if you were invited to be on a panel with two guys and Pips Bunce, would you still ask for a woman to be on the panel? So it's a, like a way of 
taking the question down so it's not this is for the sports authorities to think about or this is for the prison policy you know this is like in your life you've made this pledge for women now you've got this guy in a wig and a dress does that distract you from the pledge that you've made for women and and people did answer it and I was and they said well if he's if he is in all or part a woman, then that should be enough. I was, I was really surprised because um, these are, you know, they're economists. They're like quite hard-nosed guys. And uh, and I want to clarify, just to say it again almost, that Pippa Bunce and Philip Bunce, half the week identifies as a woman and half the week identifies as a man? No, I mean, he's a man. He's married. He's a married man. He's a man. But half the week, I mean, he's cross-dresser. This is what I said. You know, somebody asked me on Twitter, a friend said something, and I responded and clarified and said, he's a part-time cross-dresser. And that's a um, description of what he is. And, I, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I think that would have been an uncontroversial description of what he is, apart from that he wouldn't have brought his hobby to work. He would have done it at the weekend. Um, so... I mean, he doesn't. I don't think he identifies as a woman. He okay. he has a persona, um, and now you know he will call himself gender fluid. But gender fluid, I think, is just a updated term for being a part time cross dresser. Um, and that, you know, obviously, this is one of the things that came up in my case as being the most offensive thing that I'd said because you know, out of all the things I'd said, none of it was offensive but that was the most offensive thing I'd said which was to describe a part-time cross-dresser as a part-time cross-dresser. And was the presumption that a cross-dresser is a derogatory term? That, that was the question I mean that was raised in the in the um, tribunal. Yeah. The and idea not to, what? to pick on details but even this Pippa Bunce person right doesn't this individual even say about himself that some days of the week he's he's a man and some days a week he's Pippa, right? Like, so even if we were to leave our own opinions out of it, even taking that person at their own word, this is essentially a person that half of the time is just, uh, sees himself as a guy even, right? I I, I don't know. I mean... The Bermuda world of Pippa. Yeah, exactly. exactly. But, you know, I, I just think if you're running a series of awards for women in business, there sure. is no way Pippa Bunce qualifies in any way. Right. You know, you're thinking about the city and the fact that there are so few women at the top of business, you know. Okay, so let's get back to the panel. I hear you. Yes. I hear you. Yes. Let's get back to the panel. And these guys who are on Twitter kind and of women. And in fact, and in fact women. women. So there was, over the course of about two weeks or 10 days, there was like long Twitter threads and conversations which were polite and, um, you know, Could robust. Them? Are they on Twitter? Yeah, yes. they're all on Twitter. Like everything is still on Twitter. I don't delete anything and it's all still there, apart from some people who are in the conversations have deleted. Um but it's all in the evidence bundles anyway. And so over the course of about 10 days, there were a series of discussion threads on Twitter where people mainly disagreed with me, but in different ways. And we kind of unpicked stuff conceptually. And, you know, why does this make him a woman? And what, you know, all of those arguments mm -hmm. in good faith. 
and I, I and I think that was my crime was that I started a debate within you know people within my sector and and they thought it was a topic that you could talk about uh. um and what I didn't know at the time while this conversation was going on was that it sort of set off alarm bells in the headquarters of the organization that I was working for, which was in Washington, D.C. Uh, a couple of young women went to see the head of HR and said, this is transphobic. Wait, 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 before you, before you do your I love work. the American accent that oh, she, she just took on there. <laughs> but, um, it was an English-based organization. Sophie tried to get me to do American accent last week, and I, I completely figured it out. Maya <laughs> wins in that department easily. That was very good, Maya. So wait, um, this was an English-based organization that had some... No, no, this is a U.S. organization that had a European office. Uh-huh. So I was in the European office. And uh, most of the staff were in the US. Keep going. Um, so, yeah, so they, they you know, knocked on the door of HR and said, this is transphobic. Um, and <laughs> HR emailed me and said, um, could you put a disclaimer on your tweets, on your Twitter bio? And we ask people not to use exclusionary language. And so I did put a disclaimer because, you know, all views my own. And I responded and um, the guy who emailed me, you know, it was it was not a huge organization and it was a very kind of debatey organization. So although it was an email from HR, I still thought, you know, well, maybe he'd like to engage with the issues. Um, and so I wrote back to him and sort of told him why I think what I think and told him that, um, you know, the term women excludes men so and you presumably were feeling quite good because you'd had a two-week debate that was civilized on yeah exchanging views right and i and i thought i was in an organization that that um valued debate yeah Yeah. so i so i kind of thought it would be fine and so i thought maybe you know he hadn't engaged with it and if i explained why i thought this was important that he'd go okay well fine you know put a disclaimer on your tweets and that would be the end of it um and so i wrote to him and said that uh didn't hear back from him um and sort of thought that was the end of it um but then over the course of the next few months i was here so my work situation was not stable. I was I was on a short-term contract and I was fundraising with them to build a larger program. So I was working with colleagues in Washington and in London to fundraise with the idea that once we had the funding secured, I would then have a job to do the work, which was, you know, research that I had um, planned and pitched to the funder. So as those discussions were going on, then I started to hear, well, there are concerns. There are concerns about you in Washington. Um, there are concerns that you're transphobic or that you shouldn't be saying these things. But the the real sense I got from talking, so this was, you know, one of the senior managers was just they really wished I wouldn't want I wouldn't talk about it. They it wasn't that they it wasn't that he thought it was transphobic, I don't think. It was more, you know, it would just be. It would just make their life easier if okay. if I didn't talk about this issue. Um, 
and I just kept saying, well, this is an issue. It's a policy issue. It's a, it, you know, and it's an issue that affects um, international organizations and that, you know, this is what they later said was, was proselytizing. But that, you know, that was me trying to make the case that this is, <laughs> this is a policy issue. This is a legal issue. We should be able to talk about it. Um, so this, this went on for six months while I was, you know, trying to secure my employment. And then uh, sort of January, I think, in 2019, we were having uh, training from these EDI trainers, um, and they were kind of trying to work out what to do with me in terms of my ongoing employment. And so they said, well, we're going to get these EDI consultants to have a look at you to help us develop a policy on academic freedom because, you know, we're struggling to deal with you. Um, you know, we don't want to tell you you can't say anything, but we don't have poli policy on academic freedom, so we're going to get these EDI people to look at your case um, and help us out. And so I was like, okay. And uh, so the EDI consultants were two women from San Francisco who what, were very What's white. EDI in this case? Oh, sorry. Um, That's Okay. Equality, diversity, and inclusion. Okay, so they were, sure. they were doing equality, diversity, and inclusion training across the whole organisation, um, and they said they would they would look at at me, um, and so they came they came over to to London to do this training, um, and I thought they were going to talk to me, but they didn't. So during the course of the training, I went up and introduced myself at lunchtime and said, you know, I understand you're doing this this review of of what I've been tweeting about and we ended up having a conversation where I kind of tried to explain this stuff to them and I remember at one point saying to them um you know I just I you know we talked about sport we talked about children you know all of this stuff and that at one point I said to them well um I have friends who are lesbians and they say that when they go on lesbian dating sites 40 percent of the people on there are male and they're being told that they're bigots if they won't sleep with men and this woman and this woman turned to me and she said um well maybe they can call themselves something else like lesbian couldn't mean a woman who's only attracted to women it had to include men and if you know if they wanted to find themselves as women who are only attracted to women that couldn't be lesbian because that word had to it had to include men um so so that discussion didn't go well um and then much much later so i didn't see the report that these people wrote about me much much later in court i then saw the report that they wrote about me and they were complete ideologues basically and so they had ended up looking at they looked at my twitter feed and they said things like the fact that i followed kathleen stark and retweeted things by Kathleen Stark and that Kathleen Stark had had letters written against her, you know, 150 people signing a letter against her showed that she was wrong. And the fact wow. that I retweeted Kathleen Stark was a sign that I was a bigot. And they said um, to my employers, don't talk to Maya about this topic because she knows too much about it. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so... Oh my, my God, that, yeah. that's unbelievable. If we could just like stop and yes. think about that for a second. 
Wow. And were, were you becoming really angry or really scared? Oh, well, but I didn't mm. see this at the time. This was okay. all going on behind the Like, so when you go to court, you get disclosures. So everyone right. give them all our information. They have to give us all their information. So I didn't see this report at the time. They showed me a version of it, which was much shorter and there wasn't any detail in it. And I still wrote back to them and said, it's all wrong and here are the reasons. But the full report... I didn't see at the time. Um, so, no, I was scared because I knew, I mean, I, at this point I realised that they were investigating me. It wasn't just we're looking at an academic freedom policy. It turned into a witch hunt. And oh I was sort of trying to negotiate to keep my job because I I kind of built this job and I wanted it and I, I wanted to do the work. Um, so, I, you know, I'd said to them, I won't talk about this anymore in the office. I won't talk about it on my t main Twitter account because I set up another one over Christmas. So, you know, I tried to take steps to separate out the fact that I wanted, I did want to talk about sex and gender, particularly in relation to the UK um, Euro. policy question. Yeah. But that was separate from tax and international development. So I could, I'd said, you know, I'd keep them separate. Um, but at that point, I'd antagonized too many people in Washington by talking about this. And so they said, no, we're not going to employ you. So that, that was March, 2019. So it took about six months and that was pretty much the worst time because I was on my own. I didn't know what was being said about me and I didn't really have a community around me. I'd really oh started, God. you know, just reading about this on Twitter so, uh, yeah. And then... And what did you do those six months? Were you kind of reaching out to people or were you frightened for where you should go or what, what happened there? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I remember, like, I met Helen Joyce quite early on. So when Helen Joyce started, um, or The Economist started writing about this, I thought, this is great, you know, because oh, yeah. I'm an economic think tank. And as you walk in the front door, this week's copy of The Economist was always on the front desk, you know, and just really? if something's in The Economist, you think, well, that is, it's a signal that it's a respectable thing to talk about. And I thought, well, this is great. They'll, because it's not that I wanted everyone to agree with me. I just wanted people to recognize that this is something we should be able to talk about. Um, oh, yeah. But obviously that, that didn't work. Um, but I did, I met Helen Joyce quite early on. Um, I met James Kirkup, who's been writing about this here, who also works for a think tank. Um, you know, I reached out to Kathleen Stark. I, I reached out to people who I thought could show CGD that this is respectable, that there are respectable people talking about this. And it's not just a culture war. Or it's not just kind of mudslinging on Twitter. Um, but but that obviously didn't work. And were you hoping to get your job back or were you hoping to? Yeah, I mean, I was, I was kind of keep it. And it wasn't until... Um, the yeah march the 6th i think i had a final call with the big boss so the president of the organization and he said we've decided um you know not to keep you on and um at that point i knew that you know i'd sort of lost all chances so i wrote an email sent it round to all of the staff sort of explaining what had happened cuz i didn't want to just disappear into into nowhere um 
and I tweeted about it. So it was International Women's Day on uh, March the 8th, 2019, and I'd been working on this blog post about sex and gender and international development, and it was part of why I'd lost my job. Partly I'd tweeted about it, and partly I'd sent drafts of this blog post around to people, which was a normal kind of thing that you did in the organisation. You know, I'm writing something, what do you think is a draft? Um, And so I published that blog post and I wrote a thread that said, um, please read it. And I said, I've lost, I understand why people are scared to talk about this. I lost my job. And I sort of said it in passing. I didn't think that I had any employment rights, but I said it just as a, just a fact. Um, And what I also didn't know was that there were a group of feminist lawyers who were waiting for a belief discrimination case. And so they read my tweet and got in touch with me. And what did you think when they got in touch with you? Um, I can, you know, I can't remember. <laughs> um, I say that with the knowledge that you're, you're, you had told me before your dad had taken a case and you yeah. had ways not to take a court case. Yeah, you. but, but the kind, there was sort of two days in which I decided to do this and I almost can't remember making that decision. Sometimes, you know, a decision makes itself and then afterwards you justify it. But um, so so the first lawyer that I spoke to um, was Rebecca Bull, who's now on the board of Sex Matters. And she was very sensible and told me how hard it is to take litigation. And um, and also, as I say, my dad had. My dad's a film producer um, and he produced Monty Python and the Holy Grail when I was two um and my mum's in it she's one of the coconut clapping people it was made on a very very low budget um it was very difficult to get financing for it was the first time that the Pythons made a feature film and so my dad didn't get paid up front he got paid by being one of the pythons for the purposes of the royalties so he there were seven pythons of which one was my dad for that film and so all through my childhood he would get royalty payments for that film every time it was like shown on tv in japan or you know wherever and then when they made the stage musical they cut him out of it and he felt very aggrieved and you know that he'd been done wrong which he was and he sued them um and that was a it was an awful process for him, and he won, but he the lawyers ended up getting all the money um he won one bit and lost one bit, and the costs were greater than his winnings and the um yeah the the just I saw how hard it was to do a case like that and how much it takes of your life and so it was one of the things I said was that I will. I'm never going to sue anybody. There's a, there's a lesson in life there. So that I think that's the first thing I said when I spoke to Anya Palmer, who became my barrister, was, well, I've, I've vowed never to sue anybody. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high-quality content for this show, and we're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for supporting us. RIME, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a non-profit organisation dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more.
And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children and young people. If you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Now back to the show. Could I ask, um, when, the, when you lost your job, I presume people were making noises about you suing people, or certainly you were thinking of it. And were you thinking all the time, I don't sue people? That's Yeah, 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 that, that, that's what I was thinking. And, and so, you know, I said to um, Rebecca, the first lawyer I spoke to, I said, no, no, I'm, I'm not going to sue. And then I went off and um, tried to get another job. And I was offered um, another job. And then they took it up through the organisation and they said, oh, no, you're too um, controversial. And this happened twice. And I thought, I I have to fight this because this is not going to go away. Um, and so I went back and said, yeah, let's do it. And were you frightened or were you angry? Or were you, I, I think that must have been when I saw this famous Facebook post I once saw. Yeah, uh, no, that wouldn't have been then. That wouldn't have that was when we launched the crowdfunder. So it was. Oh, I see. Yeah. So it was eight days from when I tweeted to when we put in the claim, which is quick. And the reason why it had to be so quick is because there are um, time limits on discrimination cases. And so you, the time limit from the first discrimination, which was back six months previously when they started to investigate me, you, we had to get the case in quickly so that it wouldn't be out of time. So I started working with Anya Palmer to write the claim and we got it in in eight days from that first tweet. Um, and, and she was doing that pro bono, so I wasn't paying any money. And then it was at the point, so then once the claim's put in, then you have a little bit of time because it's sort of going up through the admin. Um, then I had to find a solicitor and then raise the money for the rest of the case. So then got the crowdfunder together. That's when you would have first heard of me. Um, and I think it was then when I started thinking, oh, my God, what have I done? You know, because the eight days, that was like I was still smarting from losing my job. I was just angry. Yeah. And, you know, I thought, yeah, I'll do this thing. I had no idea how much money I would have to raise, and I had no idea it would take three years. I was just like, yeah, let's do it. And then... I had a solicitor and we had the crowdfunder ready to go. I did an interview with Andrew Gilligan in the Sunday Times. That, and that this was like a real, this was the point where I had to jump off from being private to being in the public domain. That It was a really scary point. Just about to hit go on that. And her firm, which is a big um, kind of social justice law firm, said, no, we can't represent you. So they pulled the plug. <gasps> yeah. Oh so we, I was just ready to, to launch into the public. And they said, no, we can't, we can't um, represent you. And that was because I'm a trans. Yeah. yeah. Controversial. Yeah. yeah. No, no, because I'm a transphobe, because I'm, oh, wow. you know, because I am disagreeing with the, um, the narrative with yeah with stonewall i mean they they're a stonewall champion and they just looked at me and said um no 
that basically is what happened. And so what happened then? So then I had to go out and find another solicitor, which I eventually did. And we did launch Crowdfunder, but it was just like, you know, every door that you open, everything that you think should be simple, you know, get a solicitor, um, you know, launch a, launch a crowdfund. I mean, that's hard enough, but everything gets um, attacked. You know, every person who works with you gets attacked. So then I did find a solicitor. Then we did launch a crowdfund um, and raised, um, I think, 30K in the first 24 hours, which was massive. And so, yeah, I, like sat on my sofa and just watched the comments you know because the money comes in and the comments come in and suddenly you think I'm not on my own doing this there are all these people behind me and yeah I I wonder about the contrast there because you went from like being unable to find anybody who would employ you or like talk to you or take your case which probably created this illusion that there's nobody on your side and then when you launched the crowdfunding campaign and you just saw these numbers explode, like, well, what was that like? If it, f- it feels like such a, a whiplash kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, it really was. And it was, it was just, it, it was such a huge, significant moment in my life, really. But it was also me like sitting on my sofa in my pajamas on my own. And so much of this has been like that. It's all kind of social media. Um, yeah. It's mediated. But yeah, that that was huge, and and you know people write these comments um, anonymously and say, "I'm so glad you're doing this because I can't say what I think at work, and I'm scared of losing my job." And just hundreds and thousands of messages like that. What about personally? I mean, how was this on your life? Like, did you lose friends or get in fights with loved ones, or like? Because I know so much of this is so online, right? So I'm always interested in like what's happening in your real world right. while all this is going on. Um, I haven't really lost friends. I mean, some friends have been like, you know, some people have more or less appetite for this. Um, you That's know, a just, good way of putting it. <laughs> you know, just in terms of interest, but I haven't really fallen out with, with anybody over it. Um, you know, some of my friends' daughters don't talk to me, but not, but not my friends. And my family has stuck with me, and um, yeah, so it hasn't had that kind of personal impact. Um, professionally, it's had a huge impact, and that you know yeah. there are lots of people um, who I worked with who don't speak to me, um, and it, you know I think it's because it's dangerous for them. Um, well, and can I ask, because I'm, I'm conscious, let's say there's 15 or so minutes left, I'm thinking, so you had the first court case, this happened in my memory, you'll correct me, I'm sure if I'm wrong. And um, I remember it was devastating because the, mm-hmm. the judge was, was just disgraceful. Um, so so could you bring us forward to that? Yes. Yeah. So, um we had the first hearing, which was about the belief. Is the belief that sex is real a protected philosophical belief? And um, and I lost. And is that kind of like asking, is the belief that the earth is round a protected belief? It feels um, like a strange... Well, so, like I say, the feminist lawyers had kind of dreamt up this case before I even existed. And... <laughs> 
the idea was that you have this protected characteristic of belief, philosophical belief, and there are these criteria for what that is. And it's basically the idea is that um, you shouldn't be discriminated against for being religious or for being an atheist. But you can also have beliefs that are like a religion in that they are serious and life-defining um, and coherent and important. So it's not like a belief in um, the football team you support, or but also it's not like a belief in string theory. Like, I don't think that would count. It okay. has to be something. So, so the things that have qualified are like Scottish nationalism, Scottish nationalism, um, ethical veganism, uh, stoicism, and there isn't like a master list. It just depends on what. I was about to say is Irish nationalism on yeah, that. Well, it probably is if it's if it's of the non-violent <laughs> variety. Um, it, you know, there's no master list. It's just that people have been discriminated, and then they bring a case, and then it gets tested. Um, okay. And so, so we knew what the criteria were, and and we wanted to test whether the belief fits them. And the belief is not just that sex is real, which is like the earth is round, but also that sex is important. So, you know, because lots of people who, you know, propose the kind of trans women are women, if you really get to talk to them, they'll say, yes, yes, we understand sex is real, sex is immutable, but gender identity is more important. So the yeah. belief was not just the kind of sex is real bit, but also that it's um, more important than gender identity whatever you believe about gender identity in some situations. So, and, you know, when I finally won that that uh, bit in the Employment Appeal Tribunal, they said, that's what the law says. You know, my belief is co coherent with, with UK law. But the judge in the first case said it was not worthy of respect in a democratic society, and I was an absolutist. Um, and did you expect that to lose that? Did you know the judge? Because I've since heard that the judge was pretty batty or something. No, I mean, he was a nice, he was very nice. He was like, so the first hearing was in person and you go to the employment tribunal, which is like, it's not like a high court. It's more like a government office. And um, there are about 30 seats in the employment tribunal. So before I went to the employment tribunal, I went to other people's to see how they work. And normally there's like their mum and their solicitor or something in that there's nobody watching them. You know, they're not high theatre. But for mine, all the seats were taken every day. They were full of rad femmes. And then more rad femmes would arrive during the day and the judge kept getting up to get more chairs. Like he was just really nice. He kept, you know, he was worried about the spectators and the um you know the chairs uh so but then he came out with this this batty judgment and i think it was partly it was about him being nice you know that and and he'd been trained and they have this thing called the equal treatment bench book which tells judges what to do to be inclusive in their courtrooms which is a good thing you know be inclusive of people who speak english as a second language disabilities you know all these kinds of things um, but obviously it has a big chapter on trans, which tells them trans women are women. And so the judge had been trained that that was nice and that I was not being nice. And I think, you know, that's what that's what swung it. And I didn't think I was going to lose, but I think my lawyers probably spotted it at the point where 
the judge started asking me questions. So normally you're being asked questions by the lawyers on the other side. But at one point, the judge sort of got involved in the conversation. He started asking me questions and he asked me, they, you know, they got into this whole thing about pronouns. He was quite obsessed with pronouns. Whereas I'd said, in fact, right from the beginning when HR had emailed me, um, I would use people's preferred pronouns in a professional setting. But because, and because this equal treatment bench book tells them to use the right pronouns, I think he was um, getting stuck on that. Um, and he started asking me questions about, so I had Christina Harrison, a trans woman who was giving evidence on my side to say that I wasn't, that what I said wasn't offensive. Um, and he said to me, would you say that Christina Harrison is a woman? And I said, no, I wouldn't, but I would introduce her. I would say, this is my friend, Christina Harrison. I wouldn't necessarily have to say Christina is male or female because I'm not her doctor. I'm not, you know, just in a social situation, I would just say, this is Christina. She's my friend. Um, and he said, but you wouldn't say she's a woman. And I said, no. Um, and then he said, well, but what? A, then he started asking me about children in school and teachers. And would you say if a teacher was trans? And I said, well, you'd have to explain it to the children in a way that is age appropriate and truthful. You know, so you it, you would have to say this teacher identifies as a woman. They, they used to be a man. They, you know, whatever you, you would work out a form of words that is truthful and is understandable for those children rather than lying to them and saying your teacher is a woman when mm -hmm. they are, in fact, male. Um, but... So, so it was when the judge started asking me those questions that I thought, I, I think that's when I lost. Oh, and 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 those questions are, you know, they are the kind of fundamental questions in terms of it's e there are situations where it's easy to accommodate people and it's polite, and you know the the conflicts are not so hard that you can't accommodate people, but it's in those situations like safeguarding, like situations involving children, that the conflicts between what people want and what is true become more important. And I guess the judge drilled down into those situations, even though those weren't my professional situations, because my professional situation was adults who could, you know, be polite to each other and not necessarily point out what sex they are um, because it doesn't necessarily matter. And, I, you know, like we, we, you know, run this on a platform, our, our podcast, and it asks us for our pronouns, which I always <laughs> ignore. And I, I noticed you, you you kind of followed it. You said, yeah, yeah, she here, she her, here you go. It's, it's, the, first, it's the first time I've done it. I've just, oh, I'm going to write something funny. And I was just like, no, fuck it. They're asking me for them. I'll put them in. We weren't asking you. Am, am I allowed to swear on here? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that's fine. I, you can I, swear. It's I, just it's so it's so random. Like you know, you're going into a podcast. It's it's irrelevant to everything. Yeah, it's, it's I, I've random. never filled I've never filled them in anywhere before. But I just yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's irrelevant. It's an irrelevant point. But they have come in like you spotted in those years. The the policy matters because policy goes out into the world. But it was a roller coaster because your case and that dreadful judgment, and he said not worthy. The judge said, you know, this belief isn't worthy of respect propelled as far as I can tell propel JK Rowling into the debate yes and and woke up a lot of people um you know via JK Rowling so yeah the, 
I lost on the um, 18th of November and was kind of picking myself up off the floor on the 19th of November and she tweeted and that changed my life forever um, because it went from being this quite small story to being an international story so I went from being a small villain to a international villain um do you remember the moment reading it yeah I do well somebody <laughs> sent it to me on on whatsapp and I thought they'd I thought they'd like done it on um you know I thought they'd made it up I didn't think it was real you thought it was like a photoshop yeah like... yeah I thought it was like a mock-up that somebody had done <laughs> yeah. because, you know, we'd all been saying JK you know because she yeah she, liked things and there were a few signs of who she was following and stuff yeah. so you know it always wondered where JK Rowling was um but I never thought she would she would come out for me um so yeah I thought I thought it was just something somebody had made to cheer me up and then obviously then looked at it and then just spent the day watching the likes on that and did you message her to thank her and things yeah I did oh. I did yeah um and then it went on. So you continued, you took the appeal. And w w did you kind of think about your dad and what am I doing? Or were at this stage where you just like, I'm a machine now. I'm yeah. Over yeah, the I, yeah. I mean, it reached the point where you can't back down. You know, there's only way out is through and you just, just keep going. And the judge had said something awful. I, I do want people to know. Have you got the quote, Maya? Didn't the judge say something about not worthy of respect? I, well, I just, the, yeah. the not worthy of respect thing that's part of the test so you have these principles of for a belief to be wow. included it has to be coherent it has to be um you have to honestly believe it it has to not be based on kind of scientific evidence that could be refuted you know it can't be like a small piece of science it has to be a big thing um and the last criteria is that it doesn't destroy other people's human rights and is therefore worthy of respect in a democratic society. And it's to do with, um, because freedom of speech is a fundamental human right, you can only constrain it where it uh, butts up against other people's fundamental rights. Otherwise, um, you're giving away, you know, the power to government to to destroy your human rights. So, so the phrase comes from the test he didn't make that up mm -hmm. but it sounds awful and mm -hmm. and the underlying point to it is that he was saying if you say anything about this belief which aligns with science and aligns with the law you are destroying other people's human rights because you're offending them and their right not to be offended is stronger than your right to say what everyone can see with their eyes um you know and that's the awful authoritarian thing about this whole gender identity movement. Maya, is that one of the test criteria that the belief does not offend others? It, it No, see, that's the thing. You, sh you right. must be able to say things that offend others. But because some trans people say that if you right. offend them, you're, you know, denying their existence and you're putting their, them at risk of harm, you know, he had taken on that... Um, those arguments so instead of saying yes you have the right to be offensive because in a democratic society we we should all be offensive um he instead said no you can't say those things because they're so harmful to this um vulnerable minority 
So he was using the, the kind of contemporary trans activist interpretation of what some of the stuff means yeah. to claim that, that you're okay. Yeah. That and, because that, and because that has been filtered through the training and guidance that's given to judges, you know, he, I don't think he got it from Twitter. He got it from, from this right. training. <laughs> and so, then it went on and, and you then it went on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so then I won, um, and then went back to the employment tribunal for the rest of it, which was the, you know, it's one thing to have. So what, at the point when I won, it meant that we as gender critical people have the same rights as religious people because religious people always had those rights, yeah. um, but they often lose their cases. Not always, but often, um, they, you know. You have a right to a religious belief, but um, the question is when the manifestation of that belief comes into conflict with other people's rights. And so you need a proof of concept that not only do you have the right on paper, but you also have the right in practice to express it and to manifest it. And so at the point when I won the Employment Appeal Tribunal, people were saying, oh, well, yes, you have the right to this belief. You can believe whatever you want as long as you don't say anything, as long as you keep it in your head. And that's clearly a nonsense because a freedom to believe something but only to stay silent is not a freedom at all. And so the although the this last part of the case was much more specifically about the facts of my case, it showed that the belief itself, including the freedom to express it, are both protected in law. And that then hopefully will have a knock-on effect for lots of other people who will be able to talk about this. And that's that's why I did it. You know, that that's why it's important because people, you know, people who do your job and people who are nurses and teachers and politicians and journalists and academics all need to be able to talk about this so that we can work out solutions that work for people. And if, you know, if all those grown-ups are afraid of talking about this, then all we end up with is kind of Twitter wars. Yeah, yeah. And it took a, an, another. It took another year, a, a kind of an appeal that was something like twenty nineteen, I think. No, twenty twenty one was the employment appeal tribunal. That was the bit that I won, and then uh, the final employment tribunal this year. So yeah, over over three years wow. to end, and it's not ending. It's not finished, so they could still appeal. And then there's also the remedy hearing, which is about the money. So not it's not quite over yet. But if if all goes as we hope it does, the the, the belief, the gender critical belief will be a, a protected belief. Or is well, protected? that part is that part's done. I mean the, the EAT judgment which creates a precedent, that stands. Whatever else happens to me, that stands. And it's already having a knock-on effect. You know, I'm hearing from people. My HR department is taking this on board. You know, I'm able to yeah, say yeah. that's work and feel confident. I mean, that's it's amazing. Incredible. It's and incredible. we're coming to the end. And uh, you, you set up Sex Matters. Yes. So, um, you know, as with the case having to go on, there's, you know, this has to go on. That there, there, there is... A whole lot more work to be done to unpick this ideology from institutions 
and to help people to understand the law and to use the law and to clarify the law where it needs to be because it it you know it's a bit of a mess and it's a mess because people haven't been able to talk about it so forstatter the judgment now is a thing separate from forstatter the person it kind of it's unlocked the ability for people to talk about this sex matters is an organization that helps people to talk about it that publishes research that does legal analysis and that educates people about their rights um and it you know it's part of the same project because what we're trying to do is make this respectable so that um people can talk about where the conflicts of rights are how we understand this what we do about this um that's really what sex matters is doing it's trying to be safe for work but talking honestly and clearly about where sex matters. I wonder, will there be other um, org- organisations like that in each other country? Because the UK is 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 protecting things like this, but other countries... Are, yeah, I, I think there needs to be. I mean, one thing about my case is it relies on um, the European Convention on Human Rights. It explicitly relies on the European Convention on Human Rights, which means it's not a legally binding precedent for other European countries, but they can point to it and say it's persuasive because their laws also rely on the European Convention on Human Rights. So people in Ireland and Spain and France should also be able to use my judgment. Um, But I think what's going on in the UK in terms of the fight back against this is quite unique. It's not... It's better organized it's got more people more energy than than anywhere else but i'm hoping that the gains that we make in the uk help people in other countries who you know mainly women in other countries who are pushing back against this well we're really grateful that you were able to kind of come on and and help us understand the nitty-gritty of your case because it's it's complicated and it was i'm sure a, a hell of a process for you and we're so glad that Uh, Sex Matters is kind of taking this up in a broader sense. So, Maya, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. This has been really great. Thank you, Sasha. Thank you, Stella. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect, and listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media, and if you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Just go to our link tree, that's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.